0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 161, Washerwoman Strike Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shaped the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So with February being Black History Month, I did not want the month to end without sharing an episode related to the topic. And of course, you know, we all know I'm not organized enough to actually, you know, plan my episodes to coincide in the months they are supposed to. And if you've listened to even one of my episodes, you know that Atlanta's history is all the things, especially if you're talking about pre-1965 Immigration Act, it's very much white and black all the time. It's hard to extract those things. But The washerwomen's strike story is one of my favorite from Atlanta history. It is women doing things in a time when it was not expected of them, especially black women. And it's really still relevant today because we are talking globally about labor strikes and labor issues. And the story is always incredible. And so I talked about this two years ago, but today I'm going to replay it for you guys to make sure you know about it. This week, I'm talking about Atlanta's 1881 washerwomen's strike. Not even two decades out of slavery, a group of African-American women launched a successful labor strike that would bring lasting change and become one of the earliest civil rights battles in the history of the city. This story has very little tangible remnants, but it's one that I love to share and I think is important to share. As the Civil War ends, African-Americans are coming to Atlanta in large numbers. Between 1860 and 1870, the Black population grows from 1,900 people to 10,000 people. And for many, the first step is stopping at the Freedmen's Bureau. In case that doesn't sound familiar to you, the Freedmen's Bureau was created by Congress at the very end of the war to assist African Americans that were transitioning from slavery to freedom. And it was the first agency solely dedicated to social welfare. They established schools, hospitals, And most of the time, they just helped with information. So for many that were coming to Atlanta, they would stop there first to see if there were records um, about their husbands, their wives, their children that had been sold away during slavery. For most African-American males, the jobs that were available to them were mostly in unskilled labor. The railroad was a big one. I talked about that in the Reynolds Hound episode, Uh, and being a brakeman was death-defying. So you literally rode on the top of the trains, tried to keep your head down and your limbs close by. There was also day labor work, um, and then there was work in hotels as a cook or a waiter or a porter. For women, the options were bleak. Black women were not hired for industrial factory jobs where white women worked. Remember, this is after the war, so we have a lot of family fortunes destroyed and a lot of widows, and white women are very much a part of the new industrial workforce. And one of the first strikes at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, I talked about that in the Cabbage Town episode, would be because of the hiring of Black women. So African-American women are relegated to domestic work, cooks, maids, or child nurses. On average, Black women began work as a domestic by the age of 16, at the very latest, and worked until their 60s. Many would become laundresses. The draw for a black woman to perform laundry work was that it gave them a modicum of control. They were able to pick up the work from different homes on Monday, bring it back to their house or their community, perform the work there, and then by Saturday, all would be returned, washed, ironed, and folded. Washing was the most prevalent job in Atlanta, So much so that African-American settlements around the city were actually structured around doing laundry. It's kind of crazy to think about, but in some shantytowns, the center of the village was a washing station, and then the homes are placed around it, sometimes even circular. This allowed women to help each other while washing, watching kids, or even having um, their children assist in the task. They had to make their own soap, and they had to make their own barrels, which they would do by cutting beer barrels in half. And then throughout the week, they would carry gallons of water from wells or hydrants to do the washing. Do not for a second think that laundry was easy. I think it's hard for us to understand. I mean, you might not like doing laundry now, but we have had washing machines for many, many, many decades. But um, clothing production industrializes after the war, And then the use of washable fabrics becomes more prevalent. So what happens is people have a lot more clothes and more people than before. Before the war, you might have owned one or maybe two dresses for the entire year. Maybe wealthy people owned four dresses, but that was it. Laundry work was the first chore women would hire someone else to do. Even if you had the slightest bit of extra money, that's the one you would farm out. And the South lagged behind the North in technological advances. So poor northern white women are sending their laundry to commercial laundry facilities, but the South did not have these conveniences. I want to take a quick second to share my very interesting connection with this story. As I've said in my introduction, my parents are from Spain, and the part of Spain they are from strikes many strange similarities with the issues of the South. As the rest of Spain modernized, their region lagged behind, And they grew up in a way like many people might have stories of their great-grandparents. I mean, my dad didn't have running water until he came to America when he was 17. But I digress. Uh, My mother and my grandmothers did laundry in almost this exact way. Now, they were doing their own personal laundry, so it was a little bit different. Um, Each small town would have a structure built near the creek or the water source, and you'd bring your laundry down usually in a basket carried on your head, uh, and then you'd wash it there and you'd bring it home to hang it. So kind of a digression, but I have very, very fond memories of going to Spain and being brought down to the washing station to see where my mom would have to do this. Now the dynamic in Atlanta and all across the South after the war was really interesting. All of a sudden, white people have to pay black people for a service, and yet the dynamics of slavery still linger. If black workers demanded better conditions or refused to perform a specific service or even work longer hours, oftentimes, let's say they went home at five, if their employer asked them to work until seven and they said no, people were kind of flabbergasted. Um, Some women domestics were beaten by the husbands of the wives they worked for. Um, There was a lot of remnants still from the slave mentality. Atlanta whites would even appeal to the city government to try to regulate this issue. And this is where you begin to see Black Codes, which is the earliest forms of Jim Crow laws, being created. The crime of vagrancy, which was very literally the act of not having a job, becomes a crime to remove the power of African Americans to quit their job and find better employment. In 1866, the Atlanta City Council passes a law that requires employers to solicit recommendations from their previous jobs, and this makes it impossible for people to quit. If you cannot get your other job unless your previous employer has good things to say, you're stuck. By the year 1880, 90% of black women in Atlanta are domestic servants. There had been labor disputes in Atlanta well before the strike, um, and there had also been two large domestic worker strikes in other part of the country that they would use as a model, uh, that the washerwomen would use as a model. In 1866, laundry workers in Jackson, Mississippi went on strike, and in 1877, railroad workers striked in Galveston, Texas. 1870 also had a major economic depression in America, and that caused a lot of unemployment and labor upheaval. For Black men, their jobs were never guaranteed and unemployment could come at any moment. So the Depression just made it worse. Because of this, Black women's jobs were so important for extra income um, or even income that would keep a family fed if one spouse was unemployed. Striking for better wages was truly thought of as life or death. So let's talk about what's going on in this city specifically in 1881. If you listen to episode 17 on Piedmont Park, I spoke about both the Piedmont Exposition and the Cotton States and International Exposition. These would both occur after the first Atlanta Fair, which was called the International Cotton Exposition. And this is going to be held over in the area, kind of the west side where the King Plow Art Center is now. And just like the two that would come after it, it was very much an audition or a way to brag about Atlanta. City leaders wanted to lure northern investment dollars, and part of the draw was, hey, look at this great workforce we have. They're ready to be trained. They never strike. Very much playing on the subservient slave thing. Washer women had already once tried to create a protective association. Uh, I think it was 1879, but it quickly dissolved. But now in 1881, they are ready. So think of the strategy behind this. To know that hitting the city with a strike just as the exposition was about to open, it was genius. In July of 1881, 20 black women and a handful of men met in the basement of a church in Summerhill, and they formed the Washing Society. They had elected officials, they had little branches of service that would each do um, each of Atlanta's five wards, and their demand was a set rate of $1 for every 12 pounds of laundry washed. On July 19th, they would strike. The group canvassed door-to-door to to gain more members, and I've read many accounts uh, of the violence that occurred, so it sounds a little crazy to think about, but this was, like I said earlier, very much life or death for these women. So if they came to you and you were a laundress and you didn't want to join the strike, there were many accounts of beatings and violence. Just a few days after the strike, the newspaper headlines tell us that much of the clothes that had been picked up on Monday had been returned midweek, sopping wet. So pretty much whoever had picked that up had joined the strike, and I love that visual. And there was also fear of other household workers striking. Ten days after the beginning of the strike, the Atlanta police would attempt to control by arresting these women. And the newspaper article calls the group, quote, a sextet of ebony-hued damsels, unquote. They included Matilda Crawford, Sally Bell, Carrie Jones, Dora Jones, Orphelia Turner, and Sarah Collier. All of these women were charged with disorderly conduct, and they were fined $5 each, except Collier. She would be fined $20, we don't know why she was fined extra, but she was. Now, she refused to pay it. Keep in mind, this monthly salary for a washerwoman is like 4 to $8. So these fines are a lot of money. Sarah Collier would be sentenced to the chain gang for 40 days. Collier would join with a few more black washerwomen as well as two white washerwomen to grow the membership. Now, white washerwomen only made up about 1-2% to 2% of the population, but the fact that they had racial cooperation in 1881 was not something to be taken lightly. And we'll never know who these white women were because the newspaper refused to print their names in order to protect them. But at the time in Atlanta, if you were a white woman um, washing clothes, you were usually poor, single, or widowed, and Irish. The women would meet nightly in churches um, or even fraternal organization headquarters, and the press called them "quote unquote" washing Amazons. White Atlantans never believed that black women were the source of the organization behind the strike. There was always a rumor of a white northern carpetbagger, or even tales of seeing white men going in and out of the meetings. Because of course, a woman could not have organized this. Um, so I kind of, I kind of like that their brains couldn't even except the fact that this was successful and it was black women that organized it. The white employers begged city officials to step in and do something. So new steam laundries were planned to be built. And some good historical information to keep in mind is that steam laundries wouldn't really take off in the United States until the 1920s, and the washing machine was not really found in all homes until the 1940s. The newspaper reports that uh, quote-unquote substantial citizens were working to raise capital and open a steam laundry as fast as possible. My favorite part is that they were actually touting the hiring of 50 to 100 smart Yankee girls. Uh, they hoped this facility was going to meet the needs of the entire city so that nobody would have to use a washerwoman again. And the businessmen were smart in the sense that they used the opportunity to ask the city council for tax exemption status, and they wanted to speed up the process of building. Now, interestingly enough, Atlanta's first large-scale commercial laundry business would not open until 1910. And that building is actually still around today. It's not in the best shape, but it is the Trio Laundry Building, which is at 20 Hilliard Street um, in the Sweet Auburn neighborhood. Within three weeks of the strike, the washing Society grew from 20 to 3,000 strikers. And the newspaper accounts get a little funnier. Uh, on July 26, 1881, uh, a piece quotes, Despite the apparent independence of white people, this is causing quite an inconvenience to our citizens. <laughs> uh, so many were sending their laundry all the way to Marietta for washing. And then another retaliation tactic that was used by white landlords was actually that once they knew that their washerwoman tenant was making more money, they would then begin to demand more rent. For some women, this worked in keeping them from striking, or at the very least, keeping their mouth shut about making extra money. City Council steps in and proposes that an ordinance be passed, requiring all washerwomen belonging to any association or society, basically a union, be required to pay a $25 annual business tax. Again, $25 is months and months of salary, but these women are not playing. And what happens next is my favorite part of the story. On August 8th, 500 people meet at the Wheat Street Baptist Church. Talk about that in episode 12. And together, they draft a public letter to Mayor James English. It's short, so I want to read it verbatim. Dear Sir, we, the members of our society, are determined to stand to our pledge and make extra charges for washing, and we have agreed and are willing to pay 25 or $50 for licenses as a protection so we can control the washing for our city. We can afford to pay these licenses, and we will do it before we will be defeated, and then we will have full control of the city's washing at our own prices, as the city council has control of our husband's work at their prices. Don't forget this. We hope to hear from your council Tuesday morning. We mean business this week or no washing. Yours respectfully from five societies and 486 members. Mic drop, guys. Mic drop. (laughs) They had some money in the coffers, but this was a bluff. This was a big bluff. There is no way that all of these women could pay that fee. And they're like, oh yeah, you want a fee? We'll pay that fee and we're going to control our own work. These women are politically savvy, and they're willing to pay that fee in exchange for self-regulation. Self-regulation for them was about respect, not being subordinate, and asserting their freedom and their identity. The city passes the resolution for the fee on the same day they approve the tax exemptions for the steam laundries. The laundresses resolve and tenacity inspire other domestic workers. Cooks, maids, nurses began demanding higher wages, other professions went on strike, City leaders can now clearly see that the magnitude of Black labor unrest is a problem. And the following week, the council rejects the idea of the fees. There's not much information recorded about the laundresses after the strike. We can make assumptions. I mean, we know that they didn't have to pay the fee. We assume that they got their $1. But we do know that at the end of the day, Black women told Atlanta's white employers and white city leaders We are here. We are instrumental to this economy, to this city, and to the New South. So there you have it, the story of the 1881 washerwomen strike, possibly one of my favorite Atlanta stories. If you've enjoyed this episode or any others, continue to share, and if possible, leave a comment or a review. Hearing how much you guys love the podcast never ever gets old. So please contact me anytime. Let me know your thoughts or comments or special requests. Enjoy your weekend and I'll talk to you guys next week.